The scripture lesson for this morning is drawn from the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Thank you. In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, And with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But to us, shame of face, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of, our, of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us, because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us, by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses... All this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice." And now, O Lord God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, 
being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. This is the word of the Lord. In liberal religion, and increasingly in evangelical circles as well, it has become all the rage to engage in corporate repentance. What I mean by that is to to pray in repentance for a group that one is part of as a part of the group, but not the whole, to pray as an American citizen, or to pray as a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, or to pray as part of the church at large, to pray and corporately repent for the body you're part of. But not everybody's doing it, it's you, but you're praying to repent to God for the whole. Functionally, the way this is working out is it's kind of religious coercion. The other day, I was watching a recorded worship service from a PCA church, and it was a, a group worship. It was, was in the assembly. It was probably a Sunday morning. And the leaders were calling on the people to join them in a liturgy of repentance, and what they were repenting of was their connection to the Puritans. The Puritans were, in the mind of this man who was leading the worship, inherently racist. We didn't want to be part with the Puritans anymore. Uh, We were going to have a worship service where we were all going to pray to God and repent of having connection to the Puritans, and you were going to come along. You came this morning to worship, and guess what? There's a liturgy of prayer, which happens with you, by the way. I mean, we're a liturgical church. You come, and there's prayers written, but you'd feel a little funny, I think, just knowing all of you, if the worship this Sunday was, Lord, I repent of being connected to the Puritans. You know, nobody asks you if you want to do that or not, but that's what he wants you to do. It's, it, it, it tends to be kind of an arm-twisting thing. We're all together, we're now going to pray, and we're going to pray against the, the current celebrity cause. There is no generation that doesn't have things it hates and things it loves. But those things change generation to generation, and uh, these corporate repentances almost always focus on the current celebrity cause. Racism is the thing right now, so that's what they were doing. They were repenting, quote-unquote, of racism, and it was a corporate repentance. We're going to pray all together 
and we're going to repent to God for, I guess, the PCA. It wasn't exactly specified, but it was us. And we're going to repent that we were connected to the Puritans because they were so racist. Can you do that? Can you pray in such a way that you are repenting for somebody else's sins? Can you pray in such a way that you are confessing and repenting of sins that are no longer current? An example being this worship service that I watched. If you were to have asked this leader, are you a racist? it would be uh, most likely that he would say yes, because I'm inherently racist. Uh, I'm a white guy. I'll look white. He look kind of Mexican. But, uh, yeah, I'm inherently racist, and uh, that's just a fact. We're all racist. But then if you began to kind of needle at him and say, so you don't treat other races like they're people. You don't treat them with human dignity. Oh, no, 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 no. That, 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 I do that. Yeah. I mean, we all, we want, we want to do that, right? Well, we do, which brings up kind of the issue. If that's something that as God's people, we've come to realize the word of God clearly teaches that all men are descended from Adam. They all are the same, that uh, it's, Darwinistic to look at the different racial groups as inherently different, and we're not Darwinists, we're Christians. If that's where we are, then why are we repenting of this? Because we've already repented. Because repentance means to turn around and do the opposite. Uh, repentance doesn't mean necessarily to burst down in tears and feel bad, it means to walk the other way. It means to hear God's rebuke and say, Yes, Lord, that's what we're going to do. If you were to needle him and say, are you doing that? He'd say, well, yeah, I mean, that's why we're doing what we're doing. Well, if that's the case, why are you doing it? Because you're repenting of something you've already repented of. Can you do that? Well, if I were to put the question to him, I'm actually positive he would point me to the passage that we're looking at. Because this morning, this is such a big chapter, we're going to take it in two parts. And the first part is Daniel's prayer. And he would say, look, Daniel is corporately repenting. He is praying about the sins of Israel. He is praying to God, repenting of sins they have committed in the past. He's doing exactly what I'm doing. Corporate repentance is a biblical thing, and it's a commended thing. Well, he's right and he's wrong. At the, at the second part of what I just put in his mouth, he's right. There is no question, but Daniel is praying in a way that we would have to call it corporate repentance. He is praying to God about the sins of the visible church, the people of God in his age. He's praying about the sins of Israel, and he is very definitely repenting for the group that's taking place. And we can't miss, but this is in fact a commended thing. If you Look at verse 20 to 21. Um, it reads like, like this. That's so I get my pages turned. Stop it. Uh, now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of God, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, which is the vision we saw last, it's the last chapter, um, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So, uh, what Daniel is doing is not exactly rebuked. God has sent forth an angel, which is no special occasion, and he tells Daniel, we've been listening to your prayer, and you're deeply beloved. So, who here wouldn't like to hear God send an angel and say, Aaron, you are just totally, absolutely beloved? Kind of, pretty much, good commendation. So, what... Daniel is doing is a godly thing, but 
the other part of what I put in his mouth, the assumption that you can repent for somebody else and you can repent of sins that are already kind of dealt with in history, that's more open to question. And as this is really very much uh, ground zero over the, the question of what corporate repentance looks like, let's look at Daniel's prayer and see what we see in it. Let's, let's look specifically at it and see how Daniel approaches this. The first thing, which uh, admittedly does not jump off the page, but it is very clear, is that Daniel is praying alone. Now, if you go through the passage, you won't find those words said exactly, but what is said is that Daniel has gone to prayer and he is, quote, facing the Lord God. Well, we've been reading the book of Daniel, and we've already encountered Daniel's uh, method of prayer. And in chapter 6 and verse 10, we have been introduced to what it means when Daniel is, quote, praying towards the Lord God. There it reads... Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was assigned, he went, up, he went home and in his upper room, with his window open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. So when Daniel here tells us, I have, quote, faced towards the Lord God, he is thinking in terms of, I'm facing towards Jerusalem, because that's where God is supposed to have his temple. That's where the Shekinah glory is going to be. That's where the people pray towards. Uh, There's also the fact that an angel shows up and you don't see everybody running for cover and falling over and dropping as dead, which you would see if Gabriel showed up in the middle of a large group. Gabriel comes to Daniel. He is obviously praying in a private place. He is not bringing everybody around him into prayer in a somewhat coercive way to make behavioral change. He is praying by himself alone in prayer. And private prayer is a decidedly important thing. If you consider what our Lord taught about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, your mind will go to chapter 6 of Matthew. And in chapter 6 of Matthew, in verse... 8 through 13, you'll find what we call the Lord's Prayer. And we pray it almost every Lord's Day. And when we pray it, we pray it together. We pray it in unison. The Christian church has done that for 2,000 years. But right before that, you will read a passage that makes you wonder, why are we doing that? And that is uh, verse 5 through uh, 8. And when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into the inner room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then you have, pray then in this way. And so, uh, you've just been told to pray in secret, and you got the Lord's Prayer. Are we doing it wrong? Are we actively disobeying Christ when we pray corporate prayers and quintessentially disobeying when we pray the Lord's Prayer because it looks like he said, don't do that. Well, the answer is no. A number of you read out of King James Bibles, and there is a really, really good reason to keep a King James around, even if it's not your major Bible. One of them is... Uh, our English does not have a plural you. 
Now, civilized people say y'all, and, you know, that's how it's supposed to be said, but it's not really in English. And Greek has a plural you, and it has a single you. And if you look at the, the verses I read about praying in secret, in the King James, it is always uh, thou. When thou prayest, go into a private place. But when you get to the Lord's Prayer, it's shifted over to pray ye like this. Well, what's going on? Well, Christ is saying when you pray in private, you should pray in private. When you're praying by yourself, uh, don't invite everybody in. You should go into your prayer closet, and this is an intimate time of prayer. Uh, This is something that you don't want other people seeing. This is very much from your heart. Uh, don't, Don't wear it on your sleeve. But when you pray in public, when you pray together, when ye, or y'all, are praying, pray like this, and then the Lord gives some categories you should pray, and the categories basically sum up everything that when we pray corporately, we should pray. But there is a prayer that you just don't want other people around for. And this is... This is part of being in covenant with God. If you're married, you're in covenant with your spouse. And you're in public right now, and when we gather for food after the worship, you'll probably talk to your spouse, one hopes, at least some, but you're not going to talk to them and relate to them like you will talk to them when you're home by yourself. Uh, there are whole categories of that we just don't want you bringing to supper. But we want them to take place because that's part of a very healthy relationship. Well, unless you're berating each other, but you know what I'm talking about. There is an intimacy that should be held in the covenant relationship. There's a way to talk in private and a way to talk in public. Well, Daniel is praying in private. And private prayer is very important. And he is pouring out his heart in private prayer, but he is telling us what he prayed because God's going to come and give him a message, and we kind of got to know what God is responding to. But in general, you're seeing a man's private prayer right now. He, he, under normal circumstances, he would not be bringing you into this. Secondly, as we look at his prayer, we see that this is a prayer rooted in the study of the prophets. As it begins, Daniel has gotten out, quote, the books, and some translations call it the holy books, and he's looking directly at the book of Jeremiah, and he is reading the prophets, and this prayer is rooted in the prophets. As an aside, I think it's just absolutely cool that when I open up and read the book of Jeremiah, I know that in the 6th century B.C., Daniel was reading the same book. I don't know if that moves you or not, but I think that's kind of cool. But Daniel is reading God's holy word, and this prayer which is coming up from his heart is rooted in what he's reading in the prophets. It is not rooted in his own emotions, his own understanding. It is not rooted in his own philosophy, This is prayer that's coming from the Word of God, going through the man, and going to heaven. And that is a very different type of prayer than most people pray most of the time. Uh, This is a prayer rooted in God's Word. It's a prayer rooted in the covenant relationship. Listen again to verse 4 and 5. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments." So look at those two verses and just think about how many words here are are covenantal language, like covenant and mercy, which is hesed, which is the keeping of covenant. Uh, There's commandments, which the greater gives to the lesser. 
we've rebelled against those commandments. We've departed from precepts, which the greater in the covenant gives. We have departed from judgments, which is what the greater in the covenant does. Daniel's prayer is rooted in something that long predates the creation of Daniel. It is rooted in the covenant that God has established with his people back even before the prophets that Daniel are reading were called to their ministry. He is praying as someone who is in a certain relationship to God, and he understands that relationship. God has embraced him as his covenant God. Uh, he has given him his precepts, his judgments, his, his, ju- his, his just laws, and Daniel knows he is praying to his great king, his, his great covenant head. Again, in that kind of relationship, you don't bring your innovations in prayer. You don't bring your political machinations in prayer because you know that God is watching. Uh, When you pray to God, you ought to realize God's listening to every word. And when you have something kind of socially coercive, it's hard to imagine that people are thinking that way. If I were wanting to socially coerce you right now, um, I would be thinking about my own plans but I wouldn't necessarily be thinking about God's, because I'm the active principle. I, I want to shape and mold you. But if I'm praying to the God of heaven, who is honestly the covenant God, who is Lord of his people and has given his laws and commands, I'm going to pray in fear. I'm going to pray as a member of the covenant, and God's going to run the show. And that's clearly what's in this prayer. God is Lord. God is covenant head. This prayer is rising out of this, and it has an emphasis on human sin, specifically the sin of God's people, but there is a definition of what sin is, and that definition shows up several times in the prayer, but it's perfectly encapsulated in verse 10. Daniel prays, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. So Daniel's prayer of corporate repentance is about sin, which you have to have if you're repenting. But what does Daniel say the definition of what sin is? Well, in verse 10... He begins with, you, O Lord, God who keeps covenant with us, you, O Lord, have spoken. So sin is transgressing what God has spoken. Now, the the voice of God in Scripture can be more than Scripture. I mean, God created the entirety of reality by speaking it into being. But it's not less than Scripture. And it conveys the whole idea of God giving a word. He is communicating, well, sin in this prayer is God has said X, and I've decided to think and do Y. And where has God spoken? Well, the next thing that Daniel mentions in verse 10 is he spoke by his law. And if you need to understand that reference, in verse 11, he goes on and says, Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Wherefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. So, in praying and repentance, Daniel roots sin in the breaking of God's law, which he does because he is clearly an Old Testament saint, and he only has the law of Moses, poor guy, and he doesn't realize that there's going to be a much more holy way of relating to God. Uh, Yeah, right. If you go to the New Testament, if you go to the Apostle John, In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, the apostle that Jesus loved, his very best friend, 
defines what sin is, and uh, he writes this. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Or, if you want to hear the King James on it, whoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So, you don't get more New Testament than 1 John. And the Apostle of John says, now, what is sin? It's when you break the law, God's law, Moses' law. That's what the Apostle of Jesus says sin is. Well, but doesn't Jesus give us a higher law? You have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and many will point to that and say, you know, uh, Jesus came to deliver us from this weak and paltry law. He gives us a much more superior understanding of ethics in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, let's look at that sermon. The Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5 of uh, Matthew. And right as it begins, after Christ has told us the kind of person who can obey the law, and then he tells us the purpose of the law, which is to be light to mankind, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he mentions the Pharisees don't do great at that. But you get the understanding uh, the law is going to be around until, quote, everything is accomplished. Has everything been accomplished? Well, no. I mean, we're still waiting for the end of the world, the day of judgment, that sort of thing. Um, the law is what Jesus is going to preach on in the Sermon on the Mount. It is his sermon text. And as you go from this point into the sermon, the rest of chapter 5 will be Jesus saying, now you have heard it has been said, but I say to you. There's several combinations like that. If you have a New American Standard Bible, here is one of the places where that one shines. In the NASB, whenever you have a quotation from the Old Testament, they translate it all in capital letters in the New Testament. So you know exactly when a New Testament writer is quoting the Old Testament. When you begin to look at Christ's statements, you have heard that is said, but I say to you, several of those combinations will be directly from the Old Testament. Um, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that sort of thing. But several of them won't. And one of the, the, the classic one is, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. Well, if you look in the NASB, you'll see that love your neighbor is all in capitals. Hate your enemy isn't. Now, there are certain passages in the Old Testament, you might say this seems to teach hate your enemy, but nowhere in the Old Testament anywhere does God look at anyone and say, you should hate your enemy. It's not a quote from the Old Testament. But Jesus is saying, you've heard they say that. Let me tell you what it really is. And that's what he's doing with all of those passages. You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, and then he gives a definition of what do not commit adultery is that includes the heart. If I look at a woman with lust and I never act on it in any way, adultery is still in my heart, but it's still do not commit adultery. Uh, do not commit murder. If I hate my brother, then murder has come, but it's not breaking thou shalt murder. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives you what God's law is really. There is nothing in the Sermon on the Mount that adds one iota to Moses' law. 
what it is is he shows you what righteousness is from that law, and he shows you that this is God's holy eternal standard, and be ye perfect, your heavenly Father is perfect, nobody is going to live up to that standard, and it causes you to run for a Savior. But Jesus is not replacing the law. The law of God is the moral standard of what is right and wrong, and when Daniel defines what sin is, God has spoken, we have broken what God has said, we have broken the law of Moses, and we have brought the curse of it on us. And then the last part is um, the words of the prophets. Daniel has been reading the books of the prophets. The prophets have come to rebuke the people for breaking the law of God. Therefore, they are teaching the law of God. And Daniel is getting God's will through them. So this is what Daniel's view of sin is. What is sin? It is going against the law of God, which God has spoke, and he sent the prophets to bring the people back to. You may think I'm belaboring a point, but much of what is happening when you're having these worship services of corporate repentance... Again, corporate repentance is a good thing. I'm not saying it isn't. But in these more coercive services, you're having people led to repent of things that don't match this definition. What is good and what is evil? Well, all men are very opinionated on that subject. You will not find any human being who says, and, you know, evil, yeah, it's okay, I can handle it. People hate evil, but they define evil in very different ways. And many of these corporate services are designed to make you repent of something that you won't find in Moses' law, you won't find God has spoken about, you won't find the prophet saying anything about them. It is the current celebrity cause. And it's the current celebrity cause mediated through the man leading the worship. So effectively, the covenant is him. And he wants you to repent of things he's against. That's strange fire. That is bringing yourself to the people of God and taking them captive. That is being a Nicolaitan. In the book of Revelation, you have a reference to the Nicolaitans, We don't know uh, that much about that group, but the name means a capturer of the people. And that's what's happening. You've got humans capturing worshipers and redirecting their worship away from what they should be repenting of. Should we repent of our sins? Absolutely. Should we as a body repent of our sins? Absolutely. Should we figure out what sin and righteousness is before we do that? Yeah, we really should. Because to repent of righteousness is evil. Going on, though, and looking at what we find in this prayer, um, it's founded upon God. And here we find Daniel's definition of things like righteousness. His definition of things like what it means to be merciful, forgiving, all-powerful. This is a part of his prayer. It's a part of the worldview. And it's not rooted in humanity in any way. God is the definition of these things. God is righteousness. God is the ultimate in forgiveness. God is all-powerful. God alone is the ultimate in mercy. Uh, if you're praying for goodness and you're praying for alleviation, it is all rooted in God. And if you're going to repent to goodness, and if you're going to repent to righteousness, it's going to be the emulation of God who is the ultimate of these things. Again, there's no room in this, this corporate repentance for a human definition of good any more than there is a human definition of evil. God is the focus. It is prayed with a remembrance of God's past mercies and actions, especially the deliverance of his people from Egypt. 
verse 15 has Daniel remind God of that. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Daniel feels connection to the people of God throughout all time because God himself has been working with God's people in all times and ages. And he has done covenantal acts, and those acts show you who who he is, and those acts still stand. Daniel may be a captive in Babylon, but he is part of a group of people who were set free from Egypt And God acted for his people, and he will act again because that's who God is. And Daniel is attached to those events as much as if he were personally there. Because God is working with a people, you are attached to those things too. You were delivered from Egypt. You were given the Messiah. You were given all the things in Jesus Christ that happened 2,000 years ago. Because God works with the people, and what he does stands. There is no room for the apostate message, God is speaking, but he has only used a comma. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but United Church of Christ buildings had that all over them. It was, it was kind of a fad ten years ago. Well, now, yeah, God speaks, but he, he's only used a comma. He's not used a period God's going to go and say other things. He's going to say things that will completely contradict what he's done in the past. Because, you know, God's creative and he'll just keep talking. There is no room for that here. Daniel envisions a God who is the perfect definition of righteousness, a God who was not deficient in the past so that he could improve, a God who, when he speaks, never contradicts himself, And he has acted for his people, and that's why we can pray to him in the first place. We find him trustworthy because there is no shadow of turning with God. This is a prayer which is raised out of a sense of disaster and misfortune. And if you look at who caused the disaster and misfortune, there's two answers for that. Over and over again, Daniel prays, we have sinned, we have behaved wickedly. And so you can say, Daniel clearly prays and says, we have caused all the trouble. And and that's true. But there is a second theme here where Daniel several, several times, especially in verse 11 through 13, Daniel clearly says, why was the city destroyed and all these terrible things brought upon us? It's because you, O God, have acted. You have enacted the punishments you told us you would bring in the law of Moses. We called your bluff and you swatted us. In these more liberal group corporate repentances, there's a general sense that the world is bad, but there's a sense that, you know, we're pretty righteous. We have figured things out and... Of course, we're going to pray for repentance, but we're going to pray for repentance for people who don't live anymore. They're dead. And actually, we're in pretty good shape. And what needs to happen is the world needs to become like us. Well, there's nothing in what Daniel prays here that's anything like that. Daniel prays, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly. And you will notice in the prayer, he brings it up into the present. Listen to verse 13 and 14. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice." Now, is that something in the dead past, or is that something happening right now? We have not prayed. We have not repented. We are still following in these sins. The reason why I'm corporately repenting is because there's something to repent of. We are, this very moment, walking separately from the righteousness of God. We are, this very moment, 
still walking in sin. That is why I'm crying out repentance. And yes, I am crying out, but it's something I acknowledge that I personally was part of. Verse 20 reads as follows. Uh, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, Daniel says, I'm praying about me. Now, as we've looked at Daniel through the book, Daniel has been a very bright star. When, when you look at people in the scripture, there's only one person who is perfect. But, you know, Daniel's been presented in a pretty bright light. But we've also only had character sketches. We've had events of Daniel's life at certain sections. There's, there's huge swaths of Daniel's life there's nothing in here about. Did Daniel compromise and sin? Did Daniel walk apart from his God? Was he seduced by paganism and idolatry at some point? Well, I mean, the only thing I can tell you is Daniel says, I'm praying about my sin. And the odds are Daniel, as part of the people of God, who are ongoing in rebellion to God, engaged in that at times just like we all do, because our sinful nature draws us. But Daniel is not praying about dead people who needed to repent, but they didn't. Daniel is praying about a visible church that right this moment needs to repent because they're sinful, and he feels in his heart, I am in fact entrenched in that, I am a part of the problem, I am a sinner. And it's not just, I'm in a bad group. It's, I have broken the law of God. I cannot serve the Lord in my flesh. I have failed. And so as I repent for the visible church, I'm repenting for me because I really need it. I really am a sinner. I really have transgressed the law of God. This is not something ancient. This is something right now. And the major focus of this prayer of corporate repentance is that it is concerned for the name of God. Lord, remember you brought a people out of the land of Egypt for your namesake. The mockers of us, they they cast shade on your name. Or the way the prayer ends in verse 19, uh, that's the crescendo it comes to. Uh, verse 19 reads, uh, uh, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people called by your name. Daniel's motivation, this spirit-influenced prayer, this scripture of prayer, is not ultimately about making mankind better, or making even the church better, although he does pray about that. The ultimate rootage of his repentance is the glory of the name of God. When God's people rebel, the name of the Lord is is tarnished among the Gentiles. Three times, if I remember correctly, at least twice, God says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And it's quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans. The ultimate transgression of human sin is that it walks on the name of God. And so Daniel doesn't pray about our righteousness. He doesn't pray... Lord, now we've got everything together, and please let other people be like us. He prays, Lord, we are sinning this very moment, just like we did under Jehoiakim before the disaster. We are a rebellious people, but remember your name. Glorify yourself before the world. Show your goodness by being merciful to us. Restore us, sanctify us, forgive us. 
for your name's sake. Can you pray for the church at this moment and say, Lord, we have sinned, we have rebelled, we are doing it this very minute, and we need to repent, and I am part of that? Yeah, you can do that. You need to define sin by God's word. You need to understand this is about God's grace and about God's name. You need to walk in a holy, reverent fear before God, and you absolutely need to not be coercive of men, because that makes you God. Real repentance is when we turn to God. And it's not about the issue of the hour. It's about the holiness of God, the goodness of God, defined by the Word of God, taught by the Word of God in flesh. That's what corporate repentance is. And we need it. We need corporate repentance. It is uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and we're up to 49 years since, in our country, legalized infanticide has been taking place. There is a great desire to see that evil dealt with. But did you know that uh, 72% of people who are clients of abortion places are members of churches? And you can go and you can look at the parking lot and you can see on the back of their cars, follow me to First Baptist Church or honk if you love Jesus. Um... We need corporate repentance. We need the church to repent corporately. We need every human being to fall on their knees like Daniel and to pray, Oh, Lord God, we have sinned, we have rebelled, we have tarnished your name. If you had real corporate repentance, uh, the abortion industry would collapse because they can't survive with only 28% of their business. But we need real corporate repentance. We need the church to repent. May God give us true repentance.